I'd like to draw your attention to the parable of the great banquet that's found in Luke chapter 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servants, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is God's word. The parables of Jesus we've been looking at in the month of August, this is the last one we'll look at, it's the last week of August, are about the kingdom of God. We argue whether our society is better than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, whether our city is better, uh, whether our country is better, but the arguments are always over very tiny little differences and degrees. Actually, for centuries, for millennia, all, all cultures have been absolutely crushed under weight of war and racism and injustice, of family breakdown, of violence, of mental illness, of uh, crime and of disease and of death and of loneliness and of alienation. In other words, the differences are just matters of degrees. The fact is all societies have been absolutely awash in all sorts of alienation and brokenness. As far back as we can remember, and therefore, almost all cultures have ancient legends and deep myths that say basically this. The world didn't used to be like this. The world was once bright and unsullied and beautiful but it has fallen. It's been broken, but someday it will be remended, it will be restored, it will be healed. You know, the, all of the ancient myths sing about this. The lands beneath the sea will be lifted up. All devastation and disease and darkness will be banished. A fire from the ash will be woken. A light from the darkness shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again will be king. All 
of the old songs rang with it. All the old myths understood it. Any culture with a historical taproot to the beginnings of history understood things didn't used to be like this. Someday they will be again. One way or another, they understood it. When Jesus Christ came and he called himself the Son of Man, he was constantly calling himself the Son of Man. And when you and I read that, it doesn't make doesn't mean much to us. It just sounds like, sure, you're a son of man. What else would you be a son of? That's not the way the Jewish uh, listeners heard him when he was actually preaching. The son of man was a key figure in one of the oldest Jewish prophecies, Daniel chapter 7. In there, there's a prophecy that in the future, someday, a great majestic figure will appear in the heavens at the, at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and he will be the Son of Man, and he will heal the universe, and he will mend everything that was broken, and all tears will be wiped away. So when Jesus Christ shows up and says, I'm the Son of Man, and I have brought the kingdom, you can understand why it electrified everybody. He wasn't just saying, if you elect me, I'll bring inflation down. What he was saying is, I am the Son of Man. I will bring the kingdom. I am here to bring God's revolution. I am God's revolution. And if you receive me, I'll bring his revolutionary power down into your life, and it will revolutionize your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your nature. I'll bring the kingdom power into your life and through you into the world. It was an immense claim. It was an astonishing claim. He was saying, all the old legends and prophecies are all about me, one way or the other. And the kingdom is what I bring. Now, we've been looking each week at what Jesus teaches about the kingdom, and today, this parable tells us one more very important lesson, that the kingdom of God is a feast, but it's not the kind of feast you'd think. It's a feast for the humble. It's a feast, but it's a feast for the humble. Let me just open that to you. Because you see, the Lord's Supper is based on the whole idea of the kingdom feast, the messianic feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a foretaste of that feast. And so you see, it's not pie in the sky by and by. It's, it's, a, it's a pie that you can start slicing and you can eat this, this very morning. The kingdom of God. It's a feast, but it's a feast for the humble. Let's... Let me just explain that to you briefly here. First of all, see, Jesus responds to a man who says, Blessed will be those who eat the feast in the kingdom of God. You see right here in verse 15, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast. Feasts are places where for a moment or for a day, a feast can banish your hunger and it can banish your sadness. And what this man is simply saying is, but there's the kingdom of God, and on the last day we will have the kingdom of God, and that will be the feast to end all feasts. And on that day, all of our hunger will be gone forever, and all of our joylessness will be gone forever. And by Jesus telling this parable, he is essentially nodding and saying, yes, that's right, the kingdom of heaven is a feast. Why does Jesus tell that? And let's not miss the import of that. In Jesus' very first miracle, do you remember where it was? Talked about it here about two years ago now. 
In John chapter 2, in Jesus' very first miracle, what did he do? He went to a wedding feast, a wedding reception, and in his first miracle, he turned water into great, great wine and turned a mediocre party into a great party, and that was his first miracle. Keep this in mind that in the New Testament, miracles are always called, not miracles, but called signs. Why were they called signs? Because Jesus' miracles were not just bare, naked exercises in supernatural power. They were marquees, supernatural marquees. They were signs. They were ways in which he revealed truth about who he was. Now, why in the world would he, in his first miracle, to tell the world what he was all about, throw the greatest party that part of the country had ever seen? Why didn't he do something else? I mean, why didn't he do something more less frivolous. If you scratch your head and say, that is odd, why in the world would Jesus, with his first miracle, throw a party? You don't understand what he's about. Do you really think that Christianity is basically this? Don't smile too much, keep your nose clean, obey the rules, pass out bulletins, uh, take a, you know, spend your time once a month at a soup kitchen, Stay in line. It's not a fun life, but that's the price you're going to have to pay to get to heaven. Is that Christianity? Instead, Jesus Christ says, the kingdom of God is a banquet. I am Lord of the feast. I come to bring festival joy. Where my face turns, the trees laugh and sing for joy. Where my feet pass the desert blooms, where I raise my royal scepter, there is inevitably, inexorably, inescapably joy. He says that the kingdom of God is about festival joy. If you don't understand that, if you scratch your, your head over the idea that Jesus would use his miracles to throw great parties, you don't know what he's about. But having said this, the reason he tells the parable to this man is to say, yes, absolutely, the kingdom of God is a great banquet, but it's not the kind you think. If you want a great banquet, if you want to have the party that everybody in town will be talking about, you always invite the best people. Hmm? The people who are the most fun, the people who are the most together, the people who everybody else wants to be there to, uh, to rub shoulders with. You want the most confident. You want the most attractive. But the kingdom of heaven is a feast and all feast, but it's not the kind of feast you think. To enter it takes humbling. To eat it takes humbling. To have its power course through you takes humbling. It's completely different than you think. And in the parable, he shows you that it is only, only the humbled that ever experience his kingdom power, that ever enter into his kingdom, that ever receive the benefits of his kingdom. Now let me just show you four ways that you have got to humble yourself or you will not enter the kingdom. Not only that, but even if you enter the kingdom, unless you're continually humbling yourself in these four ways, you will not experience the joy of the kingdom. You will not experience the power of the kingdom. Four ways. Let's look. Number one, he shows you here that you must be humbled under the slowness of the kingdom. Secondly, under the freeness of the kingdom. Thirdly, under the commonness of the kingdom. And fourthly, under the priority of the kingdom. We won't have much time to go over these, but we want to at least touch on each. First of all, 
You have to humble yourself under the slowness of the kingdom. Notice that first you get the invitation, but it's being prepared. Verse 16, he sends out the invitation, but it's not till later on that it is prepared. The kingdom of heaven is like a feast, but the feast is in preparation. You might come by and you might taste it. You smell it. You, you get a lot of the joy of it, but in fullness, it's not coming to the end. That's something we looked at every single week. Every single parable of Jesus shows us this, one degree or another. The kingdom of heaven is something you taste now. It's a power that comes into your life now, but it won't completely heal. It won't completely restore until the last day, the judgment day. And so it's already here, but it's not yet here. To, to enter a kingdom like that takes humility. It means you have to be humble under the slowness of it. Example. I hate birthday parties for my children. And here's why. You have a birthday party, and at 7 a.m. when you're still in bed, the kids come running on in and they say, is it time yet? It's 7 a.m., Saturday morning. Time for my birthday party? No, honey, it's not time for the birthday party yet. We've got a lot to do. Very upset, of course, you know, stamps off and that kind of thing. Eight o'clock, you know, now you're up and you're getting around. Is, is it time yet? No, honey, we're preparing it. We've got to make the cake, you know. Nine o'clock, is it time yet? No, not yet, honey. It's, you know, it's, uh, we've got a lot of things to do. And besides that, your friends aren't coming over to three o'clock. And, you know, you have to take a nap before we even have the party. A nap! If this is the way life is going to be, I don't want to live. And you see, what happens is a child wants what he or she wants now. All I know is, why isn't the party started? And the parents say, look, there's things that have to happen. There's things that have got to be done. You don't understand. I'm an adult. You're a kid. Have some humility. Children don't have humility. They think they understand. They think they know everything. They have their feelings. And in the same way, Christians, you might know intellectually that Jesus is Lord, and you might already see that he's already come into your life and he's changed so many things, and you can begin to see the restoration and the healing power. But you look around and you see dead bodies in the streets and you see loneliness in your own heart and you see tears everywhere, and there's times in which you say, what's going on here? Like John the Baptist, who was in the prison, he says, he says, Jesus, if you're the king and I'm the servant of the king, why am I about to have my head cut off? Why is there so much opposition? Why is there still so much hurt? Why haven't you put all evil down? And God looks and says, honey, not yet. I've got things to do. I'm working on it. Humble yourself under his schedule for the power of the kingdom in the world. You must. Don't be like a myopic little child who only knows his own or her, her own feelings. Secondly, you have to humble yourself under the freeness of it. Look, he says, come, everything is prepared. The kingdom of God is not a restaurant that you have to pay money to eat. Nor is the kingdom of God a potluck supper where you have to prepare your own food and bring it. It's not a potluck supper. It's not a restaurant. Come. Everything is prepared. You can't merit it. You have nothing that is worth it. This is far better than anything that you could pay for. It has been completely prepared for you. 
It has to be received. It can't be prepared for, and it can't be prepared. Now, I want to show you for a moment. That's an old theme. You hear it? Every week I try to find it, and it's there in every scripture passage. The kingdom of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ, is something that must be received humbly. It cannot be earned. It, can, it is received only. You cannot prepare yourself for it through your own moral efforts or through anything. It's got to be something you receive. And of course, to receive something without giving anything for it, to receive something without any preparation, I'd like to show you, takes humility. For a second, let me just show you. The people who feel they're too bad for Jesus, the people who feel they're too guilty to be acceptable, the people who feel that they're too sinful or too unworthy or too much of a failure to really have God love them are proud. Sure. You know, but it's a pride that's insulting. See, for example, I knew a man some years ago who had really wronged his biological brother, his, his real brother. He had wronged his brother, and his brother would not speak to him. And this man was disconsolate about it. And it went on for months and actually for years. He, he did everything he could to get his brother. He badgered his brother to talk to him. It just made it worse. He badgered all of his friends to try to do something to get his brother to come on over and, and talk to him. And whenever it came to his faith, whenever it came to religion, essentially, again and again, he would say, I know God's forgiven me, but my brother hasn't forgiven me, and therefore I feel like dirt. And therefore, it's hard for me to even live a Christian life. It's hard for me to even come and take the Lord's Supper. One day, somebody finally confronted him using this passage and said, you know what the problem is? What you're saying is, I am not worthy to come, and I'm trying to prepare myself and make myself worthy to come. And as a result, you're refusing the great banquet of the Lord of the Feast because you're trying to make yourself worthy for it. And there was an illustration thrown in at that conversation, I remember. Somebody said, if someone invites you to the most expensive, best restaurant in the entire world, and says, I'm going to pay the $250 a person fee, cover charge, and it's the greatest thing, and I want you to come, and if you say, that's great, let me go home and microwave a couple of TV dinners and things, and I'll, and I'll bring them. And we, you know, you can, and I, and I like, to, like to bring the dinners and, you know, in other words, treat it as a potluck. Your friend would have the right to say, you don't understand. You have no idea about the freeness and the, uh, and the greatness of this restaurant. This is the greatest restaurant in the world. If you think you can supplement in any way this meal with these microwave dinners, you're just insulting it. You're ruining it. I don't even want to bring you. Eventually, the guy got a hold of Psalm 27, verse 10, where it says, Though my father and mother cast me off, the Lord will receive me. And he began to realize that what he had been doing was holding on to his guilt and feeling like a failure and saying, there's absolutely no way that I can live a Christian life or be a Christian or know God loves me until my, my brother forgives me. It was a kind of pride. I didn't want God's charity. I didn't want it to be free. I wanted to earn it. I wanted to be worthy. And he began to realize that holding on to his guilt was pride, and he was insulting the Lord of the Feast. Now, you can substitute whatever you want 
All of us have a tendency to say, because I failed here, because nobody loves me, because I haven't done well in my career, because of this or because of that, or because of this or because of that. I feel unworthy, I feel like scum, I, or if I feel anxious. And all you're talking about God freely loving me doesn't really move me because until I have this or until I have that or until I have this, I don't feel like I can come. You have not yet humbled yourself under the freeness of the kingdom. Come, everything is prepared. There's nothing else to do. Come, everything is prepared. Holding on to your guilt, holding on to your anger because somebody has done something to you and has kept you from being the person you want to be and therefore you'll never feel worthy of acceptance or love or God's love or the kingdom. My dear friends, it's pride. It looks like humility, it's pride. Humble yourself under the freeness. Okay, thirdly, we said you have to humble yourself under the slowness, humble yourself under the freeness, humble yourself under the commonness. The first set of people that God sends, uh, that the Lord sends out his uh, uh, invitations to are the right crowd. They're his neighbors. They're his peers. They're the other people who have other homes. Hmm? They're the social register. They all find ways to get out. And God, or the Lord or the master of the house, has to send out his servants and to bring in the poor and the lame, the outcasts, the needy, the weak. What is he teaching? Oh my, something pretty amazing. Hear this. There's two ways that this sword particular, in a particular way cuts. Two ways. First of all, this tells us something that history proves, and that is the closer you are by education, by vocation, or by economics or by class, the closer you are to the nexus of social power and influence in a society, the more you're going to have a tendency to have a prejudice against the gospel. The teaching of this passage and, the teach, and, and also the teaching of history is that the kingdom power of God tends to flow toward the needy and toward the poor and the oppressed. How many times do you see in the Bible things like this? Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you know, to the influence brokers, to the educated, to the, the top of the social class. He would say, the whores and the whoremongers, you know, go into the kingdom before you. How many times do you see places where it says... The, the common people heard Jesus gladly. And again and again you will see something extremely important to understand. The educated and the influential and the powerful people in every society find every other religion except Christianity more palatable. Because Christianity, unlike the other religions, is the only one that says you're a wicked sinner, you can do nothing to save yourself, Jesus Christ had to die a bloody death to pay the penalty of your sins so God the Father could adopt you freely by his grace. Every other religion says, here's what you have to do. Live a good life, live a decent life, live a life of compassion. That's what's important. You see, the Christian gospel is degrading. The Christian gospel is humiliating. And any other religion is less humiliating. And therefore, it has always been true that the cultured people want to get rid of, remake Christianity and get rid of all that idea of being born again. That's primitive. 
Jesus' death on the cross, the blood, you're a sinner, you've got to receive Christ. Oh no, we remake Christianity to say, basically, what's really important is we live decent lives, compassionate lives, that we are generous, that we're upright, and that we see all religions are basically good. So we remake Christianity that way. Here's the irony. All the people who have always rejected the old classic gospel about being born again in sin and so forth have always been people who are the most concerned politically about the poor. And yet, you do not see Unitarian churches being planted amongst the poor. And yet, it's the Pentecostal and the Baptist and the Evangelical Presbyterian Anglican, it's the, it's the old religion, it's the born-again religion that actually transforms the lives of the poor. They're the kinds of churches that are spread through our poor urban areas. They're the kinds of churches that are growing through Africa and Latin America. Here's the irony. That the very kind of Christianity that the respectable ones sneer at and won't come to the banquet is the very kind of Christianity that transforms the lives of the people they're most concerned about. We're talking about me and you. The closer you are to the nexus of power in a a society, the more likely you are to have a prejudice against the biblical gospel. The kingdom of God, the power of the kingdom, tends to go toward the needy. They understand it. They love it. They hear it. And we don't as much. There's a prejudice that the haves have, but the have-nots have not. And Jesus says, beware. The very primitive born-again religion that the respectable people reject is the only kind of religion that will ever transform the very people that you most want to help. Why? Because it's true for you too. Not only that, to humble yourself under the commonness of the gospel, to realize that you are as much a sinner as anybody else, under your respectability, and under your morality, and under your education, and under your power, you are as needy and as worthless a sinner, needing the free grace of God as anybody else, and if that insults you, You haven't humbled yourself under the commonness of it. That's the message here. But not only that, Christian friends, this says that the kingdom power of God looks out toward the people in the alleys. Jesus says the folks with the the, uh, stores on Main Street aren't going to come. The people who who are, you know, who've gone to sleep at night in the alleys are the ones who probably will. And I want you to go out and find them. What does that mean to go out? It means a church that understands the kingdom of God. It means that people who understand the kingdom of God have to recognize that with creativity and with uh, uh, endurance and with relentlessness, we have to go out and we have to partner with, we have to involve ourselves in the lives of the people with needs. We have to take the kingdom resources and give them. I I knew a group of Christian doctors, for example, who, deci- who went and decided to open a free medical clinic in one of the worst sections of a major city to try to meet the needs of the very poor people that live in that area. Nobody came after they had it all set up. And they did some research and found out they never talked to the leaders of that community. They never brought in any of the people from that community and put them on the board of their medical clinic. The doctors and nurses did not move into that community and actually live there. They didn't go out into the highways and byways. 
If you're going to be humbled under the commonness of the kingdom, you have to realize that kingdom power flows outward toward the most broken and toward the most needy, and they hear the gospel gladly, and we have to follow the power of the kingdom out to where they are. Lastly, and we're done, you must humble yourself under the priority of the kingdom. Why did these people decide not to come? If you look carefully, you'll see that these are not what we call today unbelievers. Most people seem to think that unbelief means outright rejection of Christianity. People that say, oh, Christianity, what a lot of bunk. That's not who these people are. In verse 16, it tells us they were invited. And in verse 17, the servants come back and say, now everything's ready. That must mean that the first time they had said they were going to come. There's no reason why the servants would come back to these people if the first time they said, I, I can't make it. In verse 16, they were informed, they were told, and they indicated their expectation of coming. In verse 17, they don't. They start out believing. They start out saying, oh, sure. But then in the end, they're not able to come. These are people who think they're coming to the kingdom, who believe in the basics of Christian faith, but in the end, they don't come. Why? These people thought the banquet would not disturb their normal lives. These people thought that they could be a part of the kingdom and not disrupt their agenda and their goals. And Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm a king. I'm moving out tonight. Nothing can come in the way. I've got to be first. My kingdom, my obedience to me as your king, commitment to the business of the kingdom has to come first. If my rules and my values make it hard for you to make as much money, if my values and my law and my rule over your life means that suddenly you have a far smaller group of people out of which you can be married, that suddenly your field is cut down, if my kingdom cramps your style and you refuse to come, that shows that you have not entered my kingdom. I must come first. I must have that authority in your life. Have you humbled yourself under the slowness of the kingdom? Or are you like a little child having a temper tantrum about the fact that God's just not doing things in your life the way it ought to happen? Or in your world? Have you humbled yourself under the freeness of the kingdom? Are you willing to see that it's sheer charity and sheer grace and that you can't possibly get yourself in a condition of being worthy. And it's pride that's making it impossible for you to reach out and say, I give myself to you. Have you humbled yourself under the commonness of it? Especially those of us who are the most respectable. Do you see underneath we are just, just as needy a set of sinners as the people in the gutter? And there, one day in Philadelphia, a guy came to me and said, you know, I'm a male prostitute, I'm a drug dealer, I'm a drug addict, and I have AIDS. What's the church got to do with me? And I said, well, my Bible tells me that you are exactly the kind of person the Father wants to sit down and eat, eat a meal with in the feast of his kingdom. He loves to show forth his kingdom power in people like you. It doesn't matter how far away you think you are. The kingdom of God means no matter how far gone you are, your goneness is no match for the kingdom. He is able to save to the uttermost. 
No one, it's never too late. No one, it, you're never too wicked. No one, you're never too respectable. The kingdom of God. Let's eat. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we receive your supper, we ask simply that we could realize that as we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we are getting a foretaste of the great feast on the last day in which all tears will be wiped away. Help us to humble ourselves in the ways that we've been looking so that this week we can have more of a foretaste of that kingdom power than we had last week. And I pray, Father, that some people here will enter today the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.